Welcome to the Creation Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth King. Together, we'll have conversations with incredible human beings who have taken their creative outlet and turned it into something innovative. From people leaving the corporate world to be eight-figure entrepreneurs, to people who have created books, created a family, or just creating to have fun in the world. We are all in a journey to create something amazing in our lives, and I hope that you find some inspiration of your own here. This is the Creation Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Creation Innovation. Today, we have Kyle Ridley, who is an Emmy-winning journalist with a diverse background in writing, producing, booking, and interviewing, and editing. Welcome, Kyle. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Finally. Yes. After all these years of doing segments with you. I know. So Kyle and I, I don't even know how we actually got together initially. If it was, I don't know if we just randomly pitched you guys or what. Um, no. It, yeah. I'd have to go back to like my old, old emails from years ago. I feel like someone might've recommended me to you or following you, or maybe an old anchor was like, this girl would be great to talk to about this, but yeah, you were fantastic right away. So I kept, kept you going. Well, I'm so grateful for that, but also in those interactions recognized, this is such a crazy job that you have as a producer and, you know, being a fan of the morning show, which is my only, you know, insight (laughs) into all of that world. I thought, let's have you on and talk about that and what, how does that look? And also just kind of your personal life. And I know there's been some, you've been open about your personal life and what you're going through recently, but I know some of the, and I don't, I want to speak for you, but I know some of our jobs that we come to have an influence on how our personal lives go. And I'm just curious if there's any overlap there. So how did, first of all, how did you get into producing and journalism and everything that you do now? Yeah, it was started out in high school uh, where a group of students in my journalism class, well, first I took journalism. So I always had an interest in writing. That was like my main passion starting out. So was in journalism class, like 11th and 12th grade. And I think I remember my senior year of high school, it might've been my junior, a select couple of the journalism students were brought to a local paper to start like a student column that they were doing that semester. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing like random like entertainment pieces or even started like a poetry corner um, back then. And then I kept in touch with my editor from that local paper. It was the, um, I think it was the Manassas Journal Messenger back in the day. Like Mm -hmm. most papers, it's it's no longer. But uh, was always writing and then maintained my ties with those um, local papers throughout my 20s. And in college, I majored in journalism and public relations. My senior year of college, I went to LA and interned at NBC in their investigative unit. And I also interned at CBS Paramount on the Dr. Phil show. And that was back in 2008. Is he still going? I don't even know. He's not going anymore. No, okay. (laughs) But that was back in like 2008, 2009 at the height of the recession. And just graduating back then, I ended up moving back home and falling into, as DC goes, more government work, government contracting, government, a lot of technical writing and editing. So it like kind of would tie into journalism and writing, but it wasn't like what I was passionate about. Mm -hmm. So it really was when I turned 30, got married sort of had fulfilled everything in my personal life and was doing well career-wise, like working from home, making good money. But I 
I had nothing to complain about, but I didn't have like a, 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 my passion wasn't being itched. So I was like, let me try to start over, try to go back into TV. And so started networking on LinkedIn, sending letters to different um, editors and executive producers and uh, landed at local ABC in DC um, via a LinkedIn like connection, talking with awesome. an EP. He brought me into shadow and then he hired me as a segment producer and worked my way up the ranks to um, line producing and writing and then took over um, several shows at my old station. And then this year moved over to local Fox. So um, which is number one in the DC area. So I've been doing that for about eight years now. And how is that? I mean, is it really what it looks like on TV from the the morning show morning and all show. of these things like the back end? Because I feel like there's we obviously as the consumer see the what what we see, but we it's very rare that we have an idea of what you guys are all doing on the back end. And from somebody who's been on several shows, I know now like they can contact you any time of day or night, whatever's happening, you know, yeah. all the things. So it seems like when do you guys ever stop working, first of all? And how is that? Yeah, it can definitely be all consuming, um, especially when you own your own hour. So usually a producer is like in charge of their own hour, especially in local TV where you're doing 15 hours of news a day. Uh, so like, for instance, at my local station now and at my old station, I was in charge of the 9 a.m. hour. And, you know, when you look at the morning show or the Today Show or Good Morning America, they have dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people on that team. And they have like groups of producers that are in charge of working on one segment. You know, in local TV, you often have maybe one writer, one producer, one booker. And in many cases, you have none. So you're like a one man show. So at my right. old station at ABC, I was booking four or five guests a day and writing the show, building the rundown in the control room. Uh, there's not as many resources. So yeah, you are glued to your phone and doing the morning show. You know, my alarm for the past several years is 3 a.m., 3.30 Oh my gosh. Uh, and do you and just get used to that? Like you, it takes a while to develop your own routine. Some, you know, a lot of anchors that have to wake up at that hour, they go to bed at five. You know, I, I, I'm not really built that way, especially when you talk about personal life and the impact it can have. Right. So I've gotten in, into a routine of napping every day after work. And that allows me to at least stay up till, you know, maybe nine, maybe 10. But yeah, as far as the all consuming aspect, you are kind of glued to your phone. So that's something I've had to work on. And at times I've struggled with like putting the phone down, not always wor worrying about who can I get on the next day? what's breaking, what's trending, uh, because it, it can take a toll. It can take a toll right. on your mental well-being, your physical well-being, just your, um, it, you know, it's a high pressure. You have no down day in a live TV news environment. You have no, oh, this is a light day I can bruise through. No, you have to go in and you have to have a show written and produced by 9 a.m. every day because you're going to be live. So, right. Uh, I mean, yeah. the stress level as well. Is it seemingly as stressful as it, it as we would think, or uh, once you're in be, the groove of it, are you like, no, I got this, like it's I'm it's fine. I feel like I got this, um, knowing that things are always going to be throw your thrown your way and curveballs are going to happen, especially in a live news environment where there's breaking news. Or yesterday, you know, Trump is arriving at New York City court during my show, so mm -hmm. we're having to cut stuff. 
to go to those live photos and talk over it. You know, he's here's the motorcade on the way. Here he is arriving at court. So maybe right. we have to, you know, kill weather or kill a news story. Or, you know, in some cases when everything's blowing up, you have to send people home um, or, you know, Zoom interviews. Hey, we have to reschedule this. We're having right. a big break, breaking coverage. Weather is also big. If there's a big storm or a snowstorm, a lot of things get blown out for that. You know, next year is going to be huge with the election and the trials and, it's a lot right now we're doing a lot of strike coverage so there's never any shortage of of stuff to cover but the thing that i love about my job and my specific hours that i do is it bridges the gap from that hard news to the the lighter side right uh, where if you watch the good morning america or today show it starts out pretty hard and then through the morning we get we get more light we get fun we get drinks we get celebrities so right. that's what i like about my job and my favorite part is being able to book guests like you and being able to bring them on share their stories uh you know you only get like three or four minutes but they it can make a really big impact and you can you know it's posted online it can spread all over the world and it's cool to see some people that i've booked over the years you know show up in other places on tv and um, right and i saw stories. I had a Google alert this week, actually, on the segment that I just did with you guys that was completely non-related to what, you know, it was like a post as an ad, I think, on some Australian or South African wow. something about fertility. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. But I covers. think to that point, it's it's so impactful to be able to have the platform that you have and in such a major market, which is pretty cool, right? I mean, you just happen to be from that area, but also as people may or may not know, there's tiers of markets of news and coverage and whatnot. And DC is one of those. Yeah, I, wow. I am very fortunate to the executive producer that hired me um, at ABC because it, DC is a top 10 market. I think it's six or seven. And the, the, the track that most people do is after college, you apply all over the country and you start out in really small town markets. You usually have to move. Right. You're there for a year or two and then you move on to a mid-level and, you know, it takes a few years, but you work your way up. But to be able to start in D.C., I feel very fortunate uh, because, you know, we have interns every semester and they graduate and we see, oh, they're and they're ending up in some city I've never heard of. Right. <laughs> but right. then, you know, two years later, you know, some are in New York or some are in. So that's one thing about yeah. producing is there's always positions open. Uh, sometimes you just have to be ready to move. Uh and so that's when that the personal life can sort of take 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 a toll. Um, but when you're young and you're 20 and you're willing to go anywhere, then you have much more freedom with that. Right. So is again back to the question of relationship and all of that. You said you were able to kind of sort it out so that you were able to nap and have a normal be up till a normal time. I'm barely make it to nine myself and I I don't have to wake up at three. But do you feel like that has has had any impact on your relationships in the past as far as your schedule and whatnot? Yes. And I I, I was married. I was married for uh, eight years and we were together 12 years. And so from by the time I was pre-TV to going back into TV. So they were around for all my schedule shifts and uh, it definitely took a toll. Uh, I, I did. Go, I went to started going to therapy many years ago. Uh, and then couples counseling. And I have, it's been a goal of mine over the last few years, several years to really strike that work-life balance. And I haven't 
achieved it fully, but I've definitely gotten a lot better at putting the phone down or realizing things can wait. Also delegating is a huge thing that I've had an issue with. And I've had to learn to be like, you're one person, there are competent people trust that they can get the job done as well. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's, that's it's, tough it's, it's though. Difficult. Yeah. Right. So another thing that I wanted to chat with you about that you've been open about is your eating disorder and what that looks like. And I'm, you know, so happy to see that you were open about that because a lot of men are not. And being a mom of three boys and a few nephews that have kind of struggled with things here and there where it's not so, um, I guess, openly spoken about in circles of men or boys for that matter. Mm -hmm. But more and more, I feel like it's becoming more common. How do you see this? And and kind of what made you feel the need to talk about that publicly? I would say the last, the, really the last year, this whole year, starting probably in January, everything was sort of thrown for a loop for me where the end of last year, I left my last job and uh, was planning on taking a couple months off and meeting with a lot of people and finding a best fit, even if it was like across the country and just sort of want to take my time away from that early schedule. And then as I was leaving my last job, um, this station contacted me and offered me a job before I had even left. So I figured might as well stay. It is home. It's the number one market. If I'm going to go anywhere, uh, I'd go there. And then also at the very end of last year, right before Christmas or right, right after Christmas, I separated from my, my husband. Mm -hmm. And so we're divorced at this point, but the whole, the whole new year started out with separating, getting a new job and just all this change. And I think in the grand scheme with so much. Those are two, two of the, I think four major life. Two big life changes. And changes. in a way it just made so much more of my life. Um, in the grand scheme, just like, why am I holding on to stuff that uh, am, is more of a burden? I think than you know, I, I always hear that the difference between like secret and secrecy and privacy is privacy is about, you know, levels of respect where secrecy, secrecy, there's a lot of shame attached. And right. every year, April, April 1st is sort of, I would, I would, I don't want to say like sobriety year because I, I will forever be conscious of food and what I'm eating and body conscious. I think it's sort of natural, but as far as uh, binging and purging, it was nine years ago, April 1st of this year. And so on April 1st, I was just like, this needs to be the year. I, every year I sort of debate sharing it or being um, saying something. And I just was like, I, I don't care anymore. It's sort of like when you hear people say, the older you get, uh, <laughs> you don't care what people think or things right. aren't as big of a deal. Right. You know, we're going through real life stuff and I don't need to, to hide this. But yeah, especially with men, it's just not talked about. But it's it's very prevalent, and especially in the gay community, it's very prevalent. Um, uh, when I've spoken with my friends about it, we all hold some sort of self-image issue, and a lot of it is is taught at a very young age. And I'm the oldest of seven, seven boys. Oh my goodness! Wait, what? I know, seven boys. No girls. No girls. Holy moly! Yeah, Kyle, that's insane. Yeah, and I I just was like, I can share my story. I'm doing well. I don't. Uh, and if people don't want to hear it, they don't, they don't need to read it or they don't, they can block me. There, there was no, um, I, I just felt like there was more shame attached in not sharing it. And so it was just time. 
Well, again, it's such a need in so many ways. And I think opening the conversation to that as well as men's fertility, as, as I always talk about, it's kind of another one of those things that guys just don't talk about. And it's it's happening all the time. And especially in, it's more openly talked about in the gay community because it's an obvious situation that needs to happen, right? I mean, obviously. <laughs> However, on the the other side of the fence, it's not so much and it becomes a very shameful thing, but really so many men are going through it. And the more that we have these conversations and are open about it, of just, it's a normal thing and more people than we think are struggling with something. And I think there's varying degrees, like mm -hmm. you mentioned, um, that we all go through, right? Some of us are born of families that have situations with, issues around food or eating disorders or whatever. So it's always gonna be a level of consciousness around it, but it might not be as drastic. So what kind of got you to this point of recognizing, I really need to, nine years ago, that I need to shift this and this is not healthy. I can't, I can't go on this way. Uh, I think fear, I think fear um, of one, losing the relationship that I was in uh, fear of just living a lie for the rest of my life is sort of each year would go by where you sort of vow to get better, uh, sort of almost like a, a New Year's resolution, um, but it would almost be monthly or weekly, sort of like diets. I'm going to start Monday. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And just to see how older the, the older I was getting and how I was hiding, I think any time you find yourself hiding, then... Mm there's, there's something that needs to be addressed. And I know I, I, I see that even years. with my little one sometimes of like, you know, they'll like sneak a cookie and I'm like, no, you don't need to do that. You know, like it's okay because yeah. that's my fear. Like, I don't want them to go into this mindset of like, you know, I, in order to have this, you know? Yeah. And I was hiding from everyone and, and it just, it, it sort of piled up or people were starting to catch on, especially my mom and, and my ex-husband. And it just sort of like, with the, it wasn't an intervention, but it was a, uh, just a talk between my husband and I. And I just felt like, yeah, I need to seek professional help. And uh, otherwise I'm going to lose everything. And do you Not know, sustainable. yeah. Do you know where it stemmed from for you? Like, was it, clear to you of like, okay, I'm doing this because of that sort of thing? Well, in therapy, uh, you know, you learn a lot about how a lot of it is just about control and anxiety and comforting yourself by filling yourself up when everything else around you seems sort of uh, out of control. You can um, sort of fill yourself, fill that void in that way, and it almost soothes you. Uh, and then you're also controlling, you know, hey, I can do all this, eat all this, and I'm not going to gain weight because I'll get rid of it. And that's another form of control. But I think as whereas, as far as where it stems is um, other than growing up in a culture that really you know, uh, makes everyone feel like you have to be, you know, especially in the 90s, heroin chic and small. And uh, I would say it's really stems a lot from my family dynamics, just seeing people in my family struggle with weight or make comments about weight all the time or always being on a diet and restricting, um, witnessing a family member uh, throwing up at a young age and not knowing what it was and learning about what it was and experimenting with it, you know, yourself, knowing it's bad, but also knowing 
this is sort of an, an easy out, or maybe that's my trick to, you know, eat and not worry about it. And, you know, I also grew up in a family that has a lot of weight fluctuations and some people are really athletic and some people are overweight. And I think it was always looked negatively upon being overweight, you know, right. even if people say, Oh no, you look great. You don't need to worry about that. When you hear someone around you comment on themselves, how they look and you think they look fantastic and they're smaller than you. It's it, right. It's with your mind um, as a elementary school, middle schooler, for sure. Right. And the reason I ask that is for anybody who's listening that may be in alignment with that and can resonate with some of those things. And, or if you have children to be aware of and conscious of how, and how you talk about food and weight and all the things around the people that are you, because that's how we get these downloads of what is normal. And I would say those children or we, right? Because I am mm -hmm. one of those children as well, that that becomes our tribe. So we want to associate with what we think is normal. And sometimes it's normal to be saying, talking about food that you can have, can't have, good food, bad food, how mm -hmm. much you weigh, how much you don't weigh, what size your jeans are, whatever, right? Like the kids yeah. take that all in and that affects them. So just kind of being aware of those conversations and how it's not only affecting, again, traditionally, we would think it was just the girls that that matters to. And now there's this huge influx of boys and men that it is affecting. And you mentioned the gay community. Why do you think it's even more so there? I think there's a, a, a big part of the gay community where it's almost expected that you're going to be showing more skin. Uh, mm -hmm. And if it's not being really thin, it's people that are addicted to going to the gym and having the perfect six pack and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they're restricting, but, uh, and spending hours and hours in the gym to perfect that body, uh, because they feel like they're being judged by their peers. And in some cases they are, uh, and, you know, also on TV, <laughs> uh, you know, you sort of, I sort of liken it to like being like that best friend on a, on a TV show, uh, you're not the main character. It's just sort of that, you know, sloppy best friend or the, you know, it's looked down upon, but I, I wish that narrative would change. Um, yeah. And also just, I didn't know anything about nutrition growing up. Neither did my family. I think it's very common, maybe in the eighties and nineties, uh, families just, we weren't aware of what was bad, what was good. And I think the bad and good label isn't, you know, appropriate, but we weren't aware of like what's in salad dressing or, you know, we think it's healthy. And then we, we still are gaining weight. And I, I think that the good and the bad foods, I, I wish we could eliminate that mindset. Cause that's where I was Completely. stuck. And I, I didn't really, I didn't really learn about nutrition until my eating disorder and trying to recover because then you sort of become focused on calories and reading nutrition labels and doing your right. own research. So in, in, in a sense, that's beneficial that you do learn what are healthy foods, but then that can also tilt uh, into the extreme of being, you know, orthorexic and only focusing on, you know, examining every label. And what is orthorexic? I think it's when it's, I want to get it right, but it's when you are like overly healthy, like examining every little thing that okay. goes in your body. Is there like a gram of sugar in this? I won't eat it. It's right. it almost borders into like raw foods and uh, very natural, like obsession about it. Right. It's just not healthy where you're not even allowing, you know, a bite of something. And that's mm -hmm. one thing, and especially with so many nutrition segments I've booked that everything should be on the table. Everything is okay. You can have a cookie. You don't need to eat 
one thing that I've learned is you can have a cookie. And if you have that cookie, it doesn't mean all is lost and you need the whole bag of cookies or, right. you know, you need the whole, you need the whole bag of cookies and then eat the whole bag of chips and everything else, because that day is spent, you've had a cookie and that takes a really long time to, to get over. Right. And I see that as well in fertility that where people ha get on these fertility diets, you know, obsessing about them because they think this is what's going to change my path to getting pregnant. And so they're like, I can't eat dairy. I can't eat gluten. I can't eat sugar, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then their stress level is off the charts because they're, they're not doing anything socially because they think that they need to be doing this, that, and whatever, um, in order to, to obtain conception. But really the amount of stress that that's causing is counteracting what really their body should be doing. And I always kind of go back to fertility specifically, that it's more about what your body has sensitivities to or kind of allergies to that we want to avoid, not necessarily just a blanket statement of fertility friendly foods, right? And I think that's, again, where you're saying this obsession comes, and it, it becomes so stressful to try to put yourself in this box. And you're for some people, they're not used to living in that way, right? For those, some of us are, that's how we were raised. But for people that are now on this new train of trying to achieve something, um, whether that's weight loss or fertility or whatever, it, it takes the mental strain overrides the ability for your body to function normally. Yeah, it's, it's all consuming and it's very um, isolating like you said, when they're so focused on what they're eating and they can't do this, they can't do this, then you will avoid any temptation or being put in that years and years. I did not, would not go to dinners, not go to social events. It was like, well, there's nothing for me to eat there, or I'm going to have to make a really special order. And everyone's going to, you know, pick, wonder why I'm being so picky about what's on the plate, no dressing, no oil. And it's, it, it's years and years you spend time by yourself and but you're also choosing that and you think that's like what you want no because it's there's a comfort in sitting in front of the tv and binging food for hours and being alone and sort of getting that fill and that high from that and then you know you're throwing it all up and you're exhausted and tired and you just want to sleep and then you wake up and you're starved and so you're you're famished and you are ready for another binge and it just comes this cycle right. yeah you also avoid you avoid everyone because you also don't want people commenting uh you avoid any being around food i remember at the start of my last the last station we would have a lot of food segments and i was at the beginning of my recovery and it was just i would just try to walk away from like all the food segments after the show just i didn't want to be around it because i didn't want to be offered it i didn't want to explain no i don't eat that so it's, right. it's, it's very isolating and that's another thing hiding isolating something there's something that needs to be addressed. And a lot of times it, it takes professional help. And that was going to be my next question is advice for people that may have family members or themselves of maybe thinking. So the noticing, isolating and avoiding anything else that you would suggest for people to be aware of either of their loved ones or themselves to say, oh, maybe I actually do have an issue that needs to be addressed here. Yeah. Um, Obviously, the the how you look is people might notice drastic. You know, I lost a ton of weight. That was the first sign that people noticed. But a lot of times, people with eating disorders look perfectly normal. Uh, they because they are eating a lot. They there might be binge binge eating and you know vomiting, but 
they're still retaining calories uh, or maybe they're just binge eating. You can't really tell if someone perfectly normal. Most of the people I know with severe eating disorders look pretty normal. Right. Uh, but um, I'm trying to think of the signs because a lot of times you are just, you choose to be alone. So you're hiding all your signs, but I would, I mean, not to get like too graphic, but like I would eat a lot in my car and I would get on, I'd get out and throw it in a trash can. So it was not like wrappers weren't ever in my house, but people close ones, especially parents and partners, they are aware that something's going on. Uh, if people are, whenever you're at a restaurant, how people order, I almost can always tell that there's something deeper, how they order. Um, and if they're dabbing their food or really yeah. always smushing their food around, uh, the Interesting. other thing, yeah, as far um, as like, from your perspective to now, like, not necessarily analyze people, but to be able to have that awareness to be like, hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Analyzing menus. If I did have to go out knowing which salad I would get and which dressing that I would have to have on the side and um, dabbing like any foods with napkins, if there was like oil or hopefully there was no butter on it. You know, you really there's there's um what you would say bad foods, which you have people with eating disorders have a list of bad foods that they just simply will not eat. Like they're the trigger foods. Uh, if you notice someone will not take a bite of something, no matter what, even for like a celebration and birthday party, that was a big thing. I remember like one birthday, my loving uh, former in-laws like made me like fruit, cut up fruit because they knew I would not be eating cake and put a candle on it or like an apple or something. But yeah, a lot of isolating, avoiding, not wanting to talk about it. If someone brings it up, I was always so defensive. Uh, I would always say, I would always sort of gaslight people and say that they were overreacting or um, right. I knew what I was doing. I was in control. Meanwhile, you're, you're totally out of control, but you think you're in control. Right. This false sense of, of what, what it is that you're doing, I would imagine, to, mm -hmm. to stay in that space. Well, I'm glad that you're on the other side of it. Nine years. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. That's a long yeah. time. I'm, I'm definitely on the other side. I mean, I'm, I'm still conscious, but yeah, as far as like what I will eat and what I, where I can go, I, I don't let that limit me. You know, I'm, I'm, I go out a lot now and I can always find something and yeah, maybe there are, there, there are, are, are still foods where I'm like, I probably won't have a, a, a full piece of cake just because I know personally, like I would rather fill up on something else, but that's also like the nutrition mindset. I learned like, right. I'll have a bite here and there and then fill up on like a, a big protein or vegetables or you know, stuff like that. So it's, it's moderation. And the thing is you don't, when you have an eating disorder and you're recovering, you're always conscious that you could go overboard. So you sort of know your limits a bit more and what your body is going to feel like afterwards. So maybe right. something is delicious, but you also have the foresight to know afterward, I'm going to feel lethargic and like kind of gross and, you know, like cheese, it's not like bad for you at all. I, I just, how it makes me feel afterward. I would rather just avoid it. Right. And <laughs> it's you learn your, you learn your body more. Yeah, I think that's the key for everybody. And that's back to my kids, what I try to teach them now. It's like, what is your what is your body telling you? Are, is, mm -hmm. are you finished eating or do you want more? Rather than like, you have to eat everything that's there or whatever, like listen to your tummy. What does it say? Because that consciousness and awareness with our own bodies, I feel like in, in our society for the most part is basically not acknowledged, right? This is what you paid for. So it's a, either amount of like not wasting 
food or not wasting money or whatever. It has nothing to do with listening to your own body of like, is this what feels good for me? And this is what I want to eat, you know? So I think it's really great that you're at that point now to know just for yourself of what makes you feel good and what doesn't and be able to make those decisions. I'm sure it's always going to be a little bit of a struggle, right? I mean, I think for any of us who have gone through something like that, I had body dysmorphic. It's, it's always a little bit there, but certainly not where it was at the height of things, right? So you always have this consciousness about it, but it's not chain, like ruling your yeah. life, so to speak, I guess, yeah, for lack of a better really, term. You're not, I used to keep tabulations of calories and everything. So Same. <laughs> like an app where I would look up everything and I just, you just know yourself more, you know what you can handle and you're not worried if you eat this, then you need to go to the gym for an hour afterward. Like tomorrow's a new day and you know when to stop, you know, when to right. stop. yeah, you don't, you don't let it. Yes. You. There's bigger priorities in life too. That's another thing as you get older, you know, it's, I can't, I was worried, oh my gosh, am I going to be all throughout my thirties and then all my forties? And cause I have seen people that have dealt with it for decades and decades. Right. And it wears well, on your mental capacity. You can't think clearly after a while you're starved. I mean, so many things there, the list is really endless endless. And also then it takes on this physical side of things of breaking down your body. Right. If, I mean, that's a whole nother situation, but anyway, well, thanks for your time today and being on and opening up about all of these things that I'm letting us get some insight on the real backside of TV, as well as all the other goodness. How can people find you and follow you and see what you're up to? Yeah, the best way is just on Instagram, uh, producer underscore Kyle, and I'm on there and I, I post a lot, a lot of its work and a lot of fun folks that we have on the show. And then I'm, I've started to open up more about personal ramblings and videos on there as well. Well, I know a lot of guys appreciate, you know, just the fact of the openness of the conversations about your relationship and everything that you're going through, because once we see some one person step forward and be honest about it, it opens us door for people to to feel okay to do it themselves. And I think that's really powerful. So good for you for doing it. Thank you. Well, that's my hope. Yeah. Yeah. There's healing right. and sharing for sure. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kyle. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Yeah, we will talk soon. Bye, Elizabeth. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Creation Innovation Podcast. Make sure to follow us on Spotify for free episodes and subscribe to the Creation Innovation Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to get your podcast. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening for a chance to receive a special gift. Yes, we actually do send out gifts. It's my favorite thing to do. So visit us at elizabethking.com backslash creation innovation for more information on how to enter. Every review counts and we are so grateful. You can follow me at the official Elizabeth King on Instagram or TikTok. Until next time.